We are looking at Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, and we're going to read down to verse 14. Luke 18, 9 to 14. I know you're going to find it helpful to have a copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. But um, let me pray for us, and let me ask the Lord to bless his word to our souls this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are the God who is sovereign over all. We thank you that you are the ruler of the kings of the earth. Lord Jesus, you are even now risen and reigning, glorified at the right hand of your Father. We thank you that you have washed us in your blood. We thank you that you have covered us with your righteousness. We thank you that we are a blood-bought people that we are not our own, but we belong to you. And so we pray this evening that you would make us to hear your voice as of the voice of the Good Shepherd, calling us to come unto you and to rest. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see our great need for you. Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit to do a great and mighty work among us, that you would change us, that you would deepen our repentance, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that you would fill us with all the fruit of your Spirit. We pray that you would draw near to us now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, and here Jesus is uh, in the middle of a section in which he has been giving quite a number of parables. And now he, uh, Luke records for us these words. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. And literally, it's the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted Uh, Many years ago now, I used to love walking through uh, the Philadelphia Gallery of Art, and one of the things I loved most about uh, the art museums in the Northeast were the the corridors you could walk down, looking at all the paintings um, that seemed to go down these endless corridors. And one of the things that jumped out at me uh, when I first started uh, frequenting that museum in particular were uh, how, how almost every painting, from whether it was the Renaissance period or whether it was an Impressionist painting, that that the artist was drawing contrast, a series of contrast in the paintings, whether with the colors or with the light or with what he or she was trying to depict in the painting. Uh, One painting in particular, I love Renoir. He has a painting of a uh, French countryside around a lake, and there's a little boat on the lake. And um, on the front of the painting, it's very large and pronounced, and you are drawn into what is most prominent on that painting. And then in the very back of that painting, there's a little train that's just going along, spouting some steam out, very small in the back. And what what I came to realize in studying Renoir's paintings was that he was actually highlighting what was so far in the background, what seemed so small and insignificant, 
and he was he was really fixating on that. That was the beginning of the mechanical revolution. Uh, trains were new things coming to take people to new destinations. That's something they had never had before. But he didn't put it in the front of the painting. He put it in the back so that you would look intently at what he was trying to contrast around him. Well, whether that's helpful or not as an illustration, Jesus was a master at, at painting stories and drawing contrast in his stories. Almost every uh, one of Jesus' teachings or stories, he is comparing and contrasting. He loves to couple things. It's the broad way and the narrow way. It's the light and it's the darkness and on and on. And here in Luke 18, he gives us what we might say is his most theological of all his par- parables, And it is the self-righteous and the righteous. It is the condemned and the justified. It is the one trusting in his works and is the one saved by God's free grace and mercy. And it's one of the most powerful of Jesus' teachings. It's one of those that we could return to time and time again because Jesus intends for us to look at a parable like this and ask, where am I in this parable? The point of Jesus' comparisons and contrast are for us to say, where am I in that story that the Savior has painted for us? Now, you might think you know a lot about this parable, um, and you might not learn anything new, but I think that it's a very rich and full parable. And tonight I want us to consider two things. I want us to first consider um, our proclivity to judge according to appearance, and then the call to judge according to righteous judgment. Our proclivity, our propensity to judge according to appearance, and then our our call from the Savior to judge with righteous judgment. Now, it's a very straightforward parable. Two men go to church. Two men go up to the temple. Two men go to pray. Uh, Yes, Jesus tells us a lot about their social status. He tells us a lot about their religious status. He tells us a lot about these men in few words, but at the beginning of this parable, these men don't look very different from one another, do they? The irony of the parable is they're going to the same place to pray. They're going to the same place to do the same thing, to pray. They're praying, apparently, to the same God, which is very interesting. Both have come as professed worshipers. Both were presumably members of the same covenant community. They're both Israelites. And both are men of the working class. Now, before I say anything else, you might say, wait a minute, I thought Pharisees were the educated, elite, the wealthy, the the rich. I thought they were the bureaucracy. Well, in one sense, they were. In another sense, they were not nearly as educated as the Sadducees or the scribes or the chief priest. They were the working class. They went to a job, we might say eight to five every day, and they came home. But they were incredibly devoted religious working-class individuals. They were very conservative. They were good with their money, as we'll see. They were good with their service. They were, they were good with sacrificing, as it were. They were very, very disciplined individuals. And yet, they were, in, in some respect, in the same class as the tax collectors. Um, and that is where the similarity ends. Now, I do think that we're meant to take that on first glance. Two men going to worship the same God in the same place, from the same society, at the same church, with the same privileges in a sense. And yet, notice what the Savior says. 
He says, two went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, this is the first thing we see in Jesus' story. This man has separated himself. He has made him, himself the prominent feature of the painting, as it were. Your eyes are first drawn to the Pharisee. And your first impression, and I, I do think for those that heard Jesus, their first impression on hearing this would be like, yes, that's the guy. That's the guy that goes to heaven. That's the good guy. That's the model. That's who we're supposed to be like. Um, Sinclair Ferguson actually says, I am certain that almost everybody who heard this from the lips of Jesus for the first time probably missed the point throughout his teaching. And they automatically would have been judging by appearance. And we would do the exact same thing if we were honest. Because we love to make assessments on what appears to be and what we see and what we can judge by our eyes. This is why Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance. Um, the Pharisee was a respected religious member of a covenant community. Um, he, was, he was revered. The Pharisees were loved. They were respected. The people... The people wanted their children to grow up and be just like the Pharisees. They, um, they would have been thrilled if their sons grew up and became part of this sect of Judaism. Um, they, they would have bragged about it. Their Christmas letters would have said, ah, our son is finally a Pharisee. They would have bragged about it. We, we only use it pejoratively because we're Christians. But they, they would have bragged about it. They would have said, how wonderful this is. He's off on the Pharisee retreat. And... Uh, and, and you're meant to take that away. And, and there's good reason, right? This man is devoted. Um, and by way of contrast, and there is a contrast here, a stark contrast, there is a despised member of society, a man who is himself hated by the people, a man who is himself most certainly immoral externally. This may be the only time he's been in the temple in a very long time. I do think we're supposed to take that away, that that there's no sense in which we should think this man was a regular uh, visitor to the temple. Um, he was an extortioner. He was one who took money from the people. Uh, in the Gospels, every time that the tax collectors are mentioned, uh, prostitutes are, are basically mentioned with them. Those are their, their buddies, social buddies, and they're, they're usually um, painted under the title sinners by the religious elite. And this man is... Uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing about him that looks right. Um, there's nothing about him that you would say, I want my child to be like him. Uh, you know, there, you could do this, and, and one theologian has done this. He's taken five reasons why you should conclude that the Pharisee will go to heaven and five reasons why you should conclude that the publican, the tax collector, will go to hell. So here are the five reasons if you're looking at this brief contrast, right? So the Pharisee is a man of discipline and prayer. He tithes. You should tithe. By the way, Jesus doesn't criticize his tithing or his fasting. Um, those are good and right things, but they won't save you. Um, but he is a man of religious discipline. Eric Alexander has said that he is so devoted religiously that he will let 
his discipline touched two of his most valuable things, his wallet and his stomach. I want you to think about that. He says, I, I give a tithe of all that I have. I fast twice a week. Um, so, so he is a man of religious, spiritual, we might say, discipline and prayer. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has said, if a church were made up entirely of Pharisees, its church bu- budget would double, if not triple, and maybe even quadruple. So if an evangelical church was all full of Pharisees, your budget's probably doing really well. They gave, they loved money, they were conservative, they, they had the discipline, they emphasized the need for commitment, all good things, all good things. And so externally, we, that's the first thing. We should conclude the Pharisee is a good man and he is on his way to heaven. Secondly, um, uh, this particular theologian says that by human appearances, we should conclude that the Pharisee is on his way to heaven because he's thankful for everything in his life. A prima facie reading of this, he says, I thank you, God, that I'm, let's forget that he says I'm not like other men, but, <laughs> but I'm thankful that I do this and this and this and this. He seems thankful. There's thankfulness pouring off his mouth. Uh, the third thing that would stand out to us, I think, if we were to see him in the flesh, uh, the Pharisee was different from other people. There was something that set him apart. Remember, Phariseeism was a holiness movement. And, and so there was something about him drawing attention to his piety that separated him from others so that, in, in a sense, we might say, and I love the Puritans. Do not take this the wrong way. I love the Puritans. But he might tout himself as, you know, a Jewish Puritan of the day. He was, he was a separatist. Um, the fourth thing, if you looked at this Pharisee, that would lead you to conclude that he's on his way to heaven is that he lives a far better life in society than the tax collector does. So he's a better benefit to society. He actually helps out and benefits society. The tax collector just takes. And then the fifth thing is that the Pharisee is more like me or you than the tax collector is. Now, you might say, wait a minute. Well, I mean, if we're honest and we sort of have things together, we might conclude the Pharisee's on his way to heaven because we see more of ourselves if we're not struggling. I might see more of me at this moment than I see me in the publican. Now, by way of contrast, you might conclude that the tax collector will certainly not go to heaven because he had been an unmerciful money-extorting man. That was a known fact. He took money from people. He practiced usury. He was, he was despicable. Imagine if, um, imagine if uh, even when the government shut down for 33 days, the IRS was still working and they came to your house every day and took money. And they were always there, everywhere you went. You had to pay tolls everywhere. You had to give them money everywhere for everything. That's this guy dominating your life. And not a good man by any stretch of the imagination. The second thing that ought to lead us to conclude that he's not on his way to heaven is that he is unjust to the poor and the weak. Uh, it, was, it was known that the tax collectors exploited the poor and the weak. They took advantage of the needy. They oppressed the people. Uh, the third reason is that he was probably an adulterer and a known adulterer. That association between the tax collectors and the prostitutes was one that most uh, early historians will say was more telling about both parties and 
they're cohorting together in their lives together. And so no doubt this man was probably a known adulterer. The fourth thing, the tax collector doesn't pray in what is an acceptable manner and form. He's not standing by himself. He's not drawing attention to a certain posture. And so he is not praying in that sense, we can say, with the right words or the right posture of the day. And then the fifth reason we should conclude looking at this this contrast that the tax collector is um, almost certainly not going to heaven is because the tax collector probably, as I said already, hadn't been to the temple in years. This probably wasn't his practice um, at all. But Jesus tells us that it is the tax collector and not the Pharisee who goes to heaven. Um, That's sort of the sting in the Savior's tail. One person got my idiom. <laughs> um, there's, always a, there's always a, and I say this reverently, a punchline to what Jesus is doing. So notice the Pharisee standing thus by himself, verse 11, said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Now, um, one of the things I found in my time walking through art museums is that the longer you stare at a picture, you could either look really weird to people, because you're just staring at a picture on a wall, or things begin to jump out at you that you never noticed before. And I think this is one of those stories where you're meant to look very carefully and see the detail in what Jesus has told us. The Pharisee, as you know this well, I'm sure, is actually a man who is full of himself. He actually doesn't pray to God. Notice what Luke says. Luke says, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, thus, God I thank you that I'm not like other men. What he's really doing is praying to himself. He's really praying inwardly to himself saying, thank you self that I'm not like other people. Now, he takes God's name on his lips. That's the frightening thing, isn't it? We can take up God's name. We can speak all kinds of religious jargon. We can use all the right buzzwords and theological words. And yet, if our heart is not engaged in calling on the Lord in truth, in brokenness and dependence on Christ, it's just mere babble. Jesus says that, doesn't he, in Matthew 15? He says, these people worship me in vain. They draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And here, the Pharisee, even in his sophisticated external prayer, he is showing us that he is really praying to himself. Now, um, the other thing is that he's not really praying. Is he, He's really contrasting himself and looking down at the Pharisee. He's actually not praying at all. What he's doing is he's comparing himself and saying, I thank you that I'm so much better than these people and these people and these people and this guy over here. Now, I think there's a, a word here for us because I don't think any of us would ever say for one moment, I'm, I'm anything like that. I don't do that. I think most of us would say, I don't do that. 
And yet there are a thousand sophisticated ways that we do that very thing in our hearts. A thousand sophisticated ways that we say, I thank you, I'm not like this guy over here or that person over there. Um, Over the years in ministry, I can't tell you how many times I've preached a sermon and had someone come up to me and say, I really wish so-and-so was here to have heard that. And I just think within, I really wish you had heard it. And I really wish I had heard it. (laughs) Because I need to hear it. We need to hear it. This man instead looks down self-righteously with contempt. Uh, He looks contemptuously on this tax collector. Whereas, and this is so interesting, the tax collector is so consumed with acknowledging his own sin and his need for an atoning sacrifice that he doesn't even have time to see the Pharisee. Isn't that fascinating? The tax collector is so consumed with acknowledging his own sin, he doesn't even have time to look at what everybody else is doing wrong. Now, let me just say this. Jesus is not, he is not criticizing righteousness and external disciplines, and he is not commending sinfulness. That's not what he's doing. He is criticizing self-righteousness, those who are trusting in what they do, with, um, with a sinner who sees their need for mercy and is crying out for it. That's the contrast. Now, um, the, the comparison and the contrast uh, continue and, and ultimately climax with us realizing that one of these is a man of self-congratulation and the other is a man of self-abasement. Um, Eric Alexander has said, the way of merit and the way of good works are the teaching of this story. The way of merit and the way of good works is the contrast. And listen to this. The way of merit may take a man into the temple, but it will not take him into heaven. It's a profound thought. The way of merit will take you into the church, but it will not take you into heaven. Um, Before we come to the distinguishing feature of learning to judge righteously and how we get there, I want to say two things. There are two dangers with this parable, one I've already noted, and that is we could conclude that we should say to anyone who is disciplined in the church, boo on you and anybody who is falling apart, hooray you. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He is not teaching that. Um, The other danger, and this is a very real one, is that our hearts start to sympathize with the tax collector And we start to despise the Pharisee, and then we start to look at the Pharisee exactly as the Pharisee is looking at the tax collector. Listen to this. J. Gretchen Machen, the great uh, uh, systematic theology professor of Westminster, Philadelphia, said, No doubt we think we can avoid the Pharisee's error. God was not for him, we say, because he was contemptuous toward the publican. So we will be tender to the publican as Jesus taught us to be, and then God will be for us. It is no doubt a good idea. It is well that we are tender toward the publican. But what is our attitude toward the Pharisee? Alas, we despise him in a truly Pharisaical manner. We go into the temple and we stand and pray with ourselves. God, I thank you like I'm not, that I'm not like other men are, proud of my own righteousness, uncharitable toward publicans, and even as this Pharisee. It's actually a brilliant observation by Machen. Because at the end of the day, it's not the form of self-righteousness, it's what's in our hearts. Now, 
How do we step back from this? And how do we cure ourselves from just looking at external appearance? And how do we bring ourselves spiritually to see what Jesus wants us to see? And how do we judge with righteous judgment? Well, I think that we do this by looking at what he has to say about the tax collector specifically. Notice um, notice verse 13. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Um, This man doesn't look up to heaven because he knows he's unworthy to stand in the presence of the infinitely holy and righteous God whose wrath is terrible and whose righteousness is unsearchable. He has, he doesn't, he doesn't have a standard. You see what the Pharisees done is he said, here are the things I'm good at. That's the standard by which God accepts me. And that's what I'm going to judge everybody else on, which is actually a pretty terrible standard because even you don't meet your own low bar when you set it there. The tax collector somehow has come to terms with the fact that God is infinitely holy and that his law is infinitely perfect and that even the least sin deserves eternal judgment. I think he understands all of that. He understands that he is condemned by nature before the bar of God. And he doesn't come with anything but a broken spirit. And that's not why God justifies him. That's just evidence. But he comes with a cry for a propitiatory sacrifice. Now, how do I know that? Well, there are different words in Greek and in Hebrew for uh, mercy and in the Greek especially. And Luke uses different words for mercy. And what he actually uses when he says, this, this man says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The word that is translated merciful is actually, God, be a propitiatory sacrifice to me. So he is looking for a sacrifice to atone for his wickedness. He comes with all his sin and he says, I need a sacrifice. And Jesus, who is going to be that sacrifice for him, says that man went home justified, redeemed, and on his way to heaven forever. Um, John Newton, who you all know was the great slave trader, uh, converted, became a great pastor to many, including William Wilberforce. And one of the greatest hymn writers in the 19th century um, was a man who really never got over the gospel. Um, He, on his deathbed, some of you have probably heard this, Newton said on his deathbed, um, they said, you've done so many great things. You've had such an awesome life. You've, you've been the pastor of statesmen that, that overthrew slavery. You've done this. You've done that. You've, you, you've been this renowned pastor. And, and as the story goes, Newton says, apparently, I'm an old man and my memory is nearly gone. I remember two things. What a great, savior I, sin, what a great sinner I am and what a great savior I have. That's it. Newton elsewhere, and I just read this was writing a friend, and he, he said this about himself. He said, I am a sinner, but Christ has died. I am a sinner, but Christ has died. Now, I think, if you're anything like me, that you need to hear that recurrently in your life. Because we have, just as we have remnants of rebellion... We have remnants of self-righteousness all the time. 
And Satan loves to come in and whisper in our ears and say, you're really better than the next guy. And Satan loves to come in and whisper in your ear, you've really messed up too bad. And the Savior comes and he says, look, here's the way of free grace in the gospel. It's by acknowledging really and truly that you are a sinner, that you have nothing, that you are crying out in abject poverty of soul to God and saying, I need a propitiatory sacrifice for my sin. And Jesus says, that person goes home justified. Um, The older I get, the more I wrestle with what's in my own soul, um, and the more I think about these things, I I am convinced that we're all going to be very surprised about who's in heaven we're going to be very surprised about who's actually in heaven. And, and if you're listening, if you're really listening, that should make you say not, well, is Nick going to be in heaven? I really hope I will be in heaven. I'm trusting I will. <laughs> but, but that should make you say, will I be in heaven? Do I have eternal life? That's a question you can never stop asking yourself. Yes, you can be assured. Yes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Um, What makes the difference for this man is that he cried out for that, but it wasn't his repentance that carried him to glory. It wasn't his repentance that justified him. You know what made the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? The one telling the story. Because he knows that in a few short weeks, he's going to have to stretch out his hands on the cross. He's going to have to fall into the wrath of God and cry out in dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. And he's going to know that he's doing it for the filthy, vile, extorting, unworthy, immoral tax collector so that he can wash him with his blood and he can cover him with his righteousness. And that's what it means to be justified. A friend of mine recently reminded me of those great words, no guilt in life, No fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No powers of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. No accusations of Satan on how sinful you've been. By the way, one of my best friends just told me this. He said, when you've confessed your sin to the Lord, like the tax collector, you've really gone to Jesus Christ, you're covered in the blood. And so any accusations that come at you are accusations against the blood of Jesus. Wow. Let that sink into your soul. If you've confessed your sin to Jesus and are confessing your sins to Jesus and you are being washed in the blood, any accusations that come against you are against the blood of Jesus. That's a very serious thing, but it's a very comforting thing, isn't it? It's a very comforting thing. Um, I want to leave you with this thought. Jesus draws this to a close, and he essentially wants us to to walk away and say, what we need to realize after hearing this parable is that the thing that makes the difference between any of us is, is whether we see our need for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and whether we have fallen on our faces and said, God, be merciful to me. Not just not just verbalize those words, but from the heart, we have cried that out. I want to challenge you as you examine yourself. You've done that. You do that. You say, I needed to be reminded of that. And and this week, we're going to go out from here, and there are going to be a thousand opportunities 
for us to compare and contrast ourselves with people around us. And we may see people that look holier than us, and we may see people that are in the gutter. And we need to guard our hearts that we would keep the focus on our own relationship with the Lord and our own need for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel and the cleansing of his blood and to know that no matter what we've done or what we've been or what we will be, no matter how much better we may get, no matter how much we may struggle, Jesus says that if you are in him, there is no condemnation. You are righteous. You are righteous. You are justified. And there is joy and there is peace. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Our God, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who justifies sinners like us. We are great sinners. We do not presume, Lord, to present ourselves to you in any way, shape, or form for acceptance based on anything that we've done. We come this evening as we would come every time we come before you and plead the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you save uh, tax collectors, and we thank you that you save sinners like us. We thank you that you save Pharisees like the Apostle Paul. We thank you that you are the Savior of all who will cast their eyes on you and who will cry out for you to have mercy on us. We thank you that you have finished the work of redemption. We thank you that you have sealed us with your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.